Welcome, everybody, and thank you for downloading another episode on the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. This is the one-on-one podcast. Today, we are joined by Mario Impemba. He's been kind enough to chat with us, to share stories, talking about his long career as a play-by-play voice on Fox Sports Detroit with the Tigers. Mario, thank you for taking the time to talk with the doc. Well, you're welcome. I wish we were working today, but obviously that's not the case, and hopefully uh, better things next year for the Tigers, but uh, we'll, we'll start watching the World Series tonight anyway, and uh, baseball is not quite done yet. Let's start off on a great note, because you and I are both Spartan fans. October 17th, 2015, where were you when the greatest play in Spartan football history happened? I was hoping to be in Michigan Stadium, but I wasn't. My older son is a baseball player at Oakland University, and they were finishing up their fall baseball season. So he had a doubleheader, and and I went out to watch him and um, got home just in time for the opening kick and uh, watched him in the comfy confines of my couch. And uh, just like every other Spartan fan, I think uh, I probably screamed as loud as anybody around uh, when that block plunge happened. And uh, what a great, great day. I know it was obviously very disappointing for Michigan fans, but uh, great for us. And uh, so we'll move on to the next one after another big win over Indiana this weekend. Yeah, now if you don't know, Mario is from the Metro Detroit area, and you grew up and in this side of town. Tell me a little bit about growing up and how you got the sports bug and your dreams maybe growing up as a kid. Well, I grew up in Detroit, and uh, actually was born in Detroit, but uh, my family moved to Sterling Heights when I was in sixth grade, so uh, I basically grew up in the Sterling Heights area and uh, eventually made my way to Michigan State University, but like every other kid in the Detroit area, you know, Ernie Harwell was, was my idol, and uh, I loved listening to Ernie. I did it on a nightly basis, but, you know, I think beyond that, I listened to a lot of announcers around the country when I was a kid. I would pull in a lot of the stations, uh, you know, like in St. Louis and Chicago and Philadelphia, and listen to guys like Harry Carey and Jack Buck and, um, you know, a lot of other people, Harry Callis. Uh, and those guys were all instrumental to me, but not, but not certainly as much as, as Ernie Harwell does. You know, when you're a kid growing up in Detroit, it never got better than Ernie and Paul. And, and on the TV side, George Kellen and L.K. Line. So, you know, those guys kind of got, gave me the bug, and, and once they got to uh, Michigan State, I wanted to pursue broadcasting, and that's basically how it started. Um, growing up in town, being a Tigers fan, do you recall some memories that you can distinctly recall saying, yeah, I think I want to do this as a career? I know a lot of people I've talked to have said they, they, they dreamed of being a play-by-play voice or they dreamed of covering a team that they loved. Do you remember some moments that you said to yourself, this is something I think I can do as a career? Well, I don't think there was one particular moment. I think it was a cumulative thing of, of growing up and, and not only going to a lot of Tiger games, but you know, on the way to the game, on the way back, listening to Paul and, and Ernie do the pregame show and the postgame show. And I was one of those kids as well that brought my radio to the ballpark. And, and I loved to listen to Ernie you know, as the game progressed. And, and I was watching it on the field and listening to him call the play-by-play. Uh, you know, so I, I don't think there was really one moment. But really, I can remember as a young kid, I mean, we're talking about you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I, this is something that I, I really wanted to do. And, uh, and I think I'm quite fortunate because when I got to college, I had a mission. You know, I, I wanted to become a, a baseball broadcaster. And so I studied communications in college, studied broadcast journalism, and, and really knew what I wanted to do. I wasn't trying to find my way in college. I knew what my way was. Now, you know, the downside of that is if it doesn't happen, there was nothing to fall back on. But you know, I, I made up my mind this is what I wanted to do, and I was going to give it my best shot. I did. I, I spent about 10 years in the minor leagues and finally got my first big league opportunity, and then eventually came to Detroit. 
Yeah, before the first big league opportunity, who were some people that you looked to that kind of helped shape your uh, broadcast career? I know a lot of people say when they get into broadcast school, there are some mentors or potentially some people that get behind them or maybe give them that little bit of extra boost and confidence to help them go forward. Who are the people in your yeah, life I, that were instrumental? Well, I think there are a lot of people, you know, along the way that you, know, you never get to. I mean, if you become a major league broadcaster, you never get to that position by yourself. I mean, you need help along the way. It's as simple as that, and I was no different. I, you know, I remember when I was in high school and college, I would send Ernie Harwell tapes, and I would, I would send him letters, and he would always respond. Um, that's just the kind of guy he was. I mean, can you imagine how many tapes and how many requests Ernie Harwell got throughout the course of, the course of his career? And I would bet, I would imagine that he answered most, if not all, of those uh, letters and tapes. And, and so I, I think it, it's really important that I do the same today, and, and I try and do that uh, for, for a lot of the young kids as well. But you know, Ernie was a great influence on me. And, you know, along the way, I had some professors and some folks that believed in me at, at Michigan State. And I had some high school teachers. Uh, Mr. Carney was my English teacher, and Mr. McBroom was my speech teacher. And these guys believed in me. I mean, it, you know, they, they told me to pursue my dreams. Uh, they never told me how difficult it was going to be because they didn't want to discourage me. And, you know, I found that out as I got into the business, but it, at least I wasn't discouraged along the way. And, you know, I found that there are so many people, um, too many to name, I think, and some that maybe you've even forgotten over the years that, that help you get to where you are, and uh, I certainly had my share. Yeah, now, coming out of school, your dream is to be a professional broadcaster, and then take us through your interview process to get to the Angels to be their play-by-play voice. Well, I had spent about uh, 10 years in the minor leagues at that point, and I think about year seven or eight in the minor leagues, I thought, you know, I've got a young son on the way, son on the way now, and married, and I don't know how much longer I have to do this minor league thing because there really isn't a whole lot of money in minor league baseball for announcers. At least there wasn't back then when I was doing it in the 80s and 90s. So I was coming at a crossroads. I I had about seven or eight years in, and I had to figure out, you know, how much longer am I going to do this? Well, I had sent a tape in 1993 to the Angels. Uh, in fact, I had sent a tape to everybody, and the Angels were the only team that answered back with a letter. It was a kind letter saying, look, we have no openings right now, but we really like your stuff. In the future, if there's something going on, we'll certainly let you know. And, and you know, everybody gets those letters. And so I figured, well, they were just being nice. And lo and behold, the very next year, they called me back and said, look, we have an opening. Uh, we'd like you to come in. Uh, we also want you to know that you're going up against guys that have ESPN experience, guys that have CNN experience, other major league broadcasters. So, just so you know, coming in, the odds are pretty stacked against you, but we'd love to have you come in. We'd love to have you uh, experience for a slight interview. And I thought, great, you know, I, I fully didn't expect to get the job, but it would be an opportunity for me to interview for a major league job and learn what they're expecting and what they want. And it would just be a good learning process for me. Well, apparently when I interviewed, I, I, it turned out that I interviewed the best and I got the job and in 1995. I uh, became the number two announcer for the then California Angels, and that's how my big league career started. Yeah, and doing my research, it was kind of fascinating. I kind of went through and looked at some of the Angels records, and you were right. They were the California Angels in 95 and 96, then became Anaheim in 97. But in your time there, the club never won more than 85 games in one season. And then the season after you left, they go 99 and 63 and win the World Series. Do you recall noticing that and going, "Wow, what an interesting, what an interesting way that, that it shook out." Going when I go to the Tigers, they they have a 99 win season, knowing that when I'm there, they didn't win more than 85 games. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I certainly re- realize that, and I certainly have been reminded of that over the years many, many times. <laughs> and, you know, the one thing I do remember, though, is sitting on my couch after I got the soccer job here just to see my first year in Detroit, and the Angels were playing San Francisco in the World Series, and I remember Kenny Lofton flying to center field, Darren Erstad catching the ball for the Angels, World Series over, the Angels are World Series champs. And I remember sitting on my couch thinking, I don't think I've ever had this feeling before. I feel awesome for the people that I still know in Anaheim. And I felt great for Mike Sosha and all the players there because I had a working relationship with them. But then at the same time, I felt really sad that I missed out on it. So it was really a dichotomy of feelings that were, that were hard to explain. And then, of course, you know, a year later, we go on and lose 119 games here in Detroit. And I start to wonder, <laughs> what in the world did I do? Um, but it's worked out for the best. We've since gone to two World Series. And, you know, I'm back home calling Tigers baseball. So. In the end, it was a great move for me, and and uh, I, certainly one that I would do over again. Yeah, it kind of came full circle when I was looking at uh, looking at the research because in '97 to '99, the manager of the Angels was Terry Collins. You recall, you know, his managerial style back then, as opposed to uh, his current style now with with the Mets. Yeah, you know, the uh, NLCS this year was tough for me to watch because I was rooting for both teams. Terry Collins was managing the uh, the Mets, and of course, he was our skipper in Anaheim, and Joe Madden was the bench coach for the Angels and, and an interim manager for for a portion when Terry was fired. So I know Joe Madden really well, and I know Terry Collins really well, and they're both really good friends and, and really good baseball men. So it was difficult for me to watch that NLCS and root for any particular team. But I remember when Terry came in, I mean, he was a no-nonsense guy. I still think he is. I, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that commands respect. And, you know, he turned the team around. His first year, we had a pretty good year, but you know, I, I guess his message just um, after a while fell on deaf ears because, you know, the, the Angels had signed Mo Vaughn. They had some big-time talents there. They had Tim Salmon, Jim Edmonds, Chuck Finley. They had really good players. Um, but eventually, Terry just kind of wore his welcome thin, I guess. I don't know. Um, and it was kind of sad to see him fired, but it gave Joe Madden an opportunity to become the interim manager. And we know what Joe has gone on to do, so... Um, both those guys are, are, are really well respected, um, certainly by me, and uh, and I wish them both well. Yeah, as you were speaking, I kind of thought about something. Back in the day when you were doing play-by-play voice, there wasn't as much social media. There wasn't maybe as much intent, the intensity of the coverage uh, surrounding the team, surrounding each and every kind of press conference that occurred. Did you find that back then, uh, early in the 90s, covering teams and doing the play-by-play, that it was maybe a little bit easier to talk to the players to get more of a, you know insider information as, it, as, opposed to, as opposed to right now where they're so guarded with you know, PR and really having to worry about 24-7 access to media? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question, one that I haven't been asked. But yeah, I, I would probably agree with that. I, I think that you know, now we do have some players like, you know, Justin Verlander, James McCann. These guys are really active on Twitter, so they understand uh, the social media aspect of it. Most of them do, but I think you're right. I think, you know, back when I broke in with the Angels in the 90s, I mean, we got our information basically by going down to the locker room and, and working hard. I mean, you had to talk to players, you had to talk to coaches and the managers. Not one for both teams, not just your team, but the team you're, you're playing that night as well. You know, now you get to the ballpark and, and you've got, you know, reams and reams of stories that have been written by uh, beat writers around the country that you can find on Twitter. You can find the lineups on Twitter. It's, it's a much different dynamic now. And I think when you go into the locker room, I think guys, they're not always got their camera phones out, interviewing guys and, and taping guys as they're interviewing them. And I think they're a little bit more guarded because of that. They can't really speak as freely as they used to in the past because, you know, they could say, look, off the record, this is what I think. Well, you really can't do that on tape. So, 
Uh, yeah, I think it has changed over the years, and, and certainly in some ways for the best, in some ways uh, not so good. So now we're around uh, 2001. You're, you've been working as a play-by-play voice for the Angels. How does the Tigers opportunity come about, and were you super excited and hopeful that this job, because it's obviously your hometown team, a team that you've grown up watching. I mean, you said it yourself. You sent tapes to Ernie Harwell, and that's really fascinating uh, that, he, that he replied so it's around that time. How how was the process of you getting to the Tigers organization? Well, I was the lead voice, lead radio voice for the Angels at that time in '01, and I was also doing backup play-by-play on television when our TV announcer Steve Fizian would do college football in September. So I filled in probably I don't know maybe eight to fifteen games somewhere in that range on television over my last three or four years in Anaheim, and and the TV job opened up in Detroit with Josh Lewin. Uh, the Tigers' voice at that time went to the Texas Rangers. And I figured, well, it's not a radio opening. I know I'm really qualified for that, but it is a television opening. I do have some experience. I have a decent take. I'll fire it off and see what happens. And I think the fact, and and I'm not going to make any secret about this, the fact that I'm from Detroit certainly helped, and I think it probably bumped me to the top of the list. Um, I I like to think the take was good enough to get the job. And, you know, I got a call from John Tui, our executive producer, and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you. And he did. We did a phone interview. I, I flew into Detroit and actually did a, a demo with Kirk Gibson, who was the uh, the analyst at that time. I remember walking into the studio and doing a game with Kirk Gibson off the monitor. And oddly enough, it was a game against the Angels. So I was pretty <laughs> well versed on, on both teams at that point. And, uh, you know, it worked out for the best, and, and I eventually got the job. What an early situation you kind of walked into. The team was still early on in the tenure of Dave Dombrowski, and you kind of had a sense that, okay, we have a strong baseball mind leading the organization, but it really took a little bit of time for him to really stamp his tenure with the organization by bringing in Leland, by getting the key free agents in Pudge. The early tenure with the Tigers was a little bit tumultuous, wouldn't you say? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, my first year, uh, six games into the season, Phil Garner was fired, and Louis Pujols took over, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? Um, you know, because Phil was a, a real respected baseball man who had been around a long time. And I and I think you're right. You know, I think the team was, was really struggling at that point. They really didn't have too many prospects. Their their farm system was barren. And the big league club was basically throwing double-A and triple-A pitchers out there every night. I mean, no disrespect to guys like Anna Bernero and, you know, and Mike Moroth and, and Jeremy Bondman early in his career. I mean, you know, Gary Knotts and, and uh, Shane Lutz. I mean, these are guys that really weren't accomplished big league pitchers at that point. And so they struggled. They struggled to get wins. And But I could tell Dave and, and Mr. Illich had a plan at that point. I mean, you know, they, they wanted to get their footing first and then eventually try and upgrade the big league talent as quickly as they could. And they did so by getting a guy like Pudge Rodriguez and, and bringing the guy like Kenny Rogers. Troy Percival came in for a while on uh, Maglio and Carlos Guillen. But to me, it was a couple of players they signed before that. When they signed a guy like Rondell White, I mean, he was a really good, solid major league player. And he was kind of one of the first guys to come in and, and turn the big league club around a little bit. And then when Mr. Illich brought in Jim Leland, uh, you know, I think it really kind of took the team to the next level. Uh, the payroll just... Uh, blossomed exponentially from where it was, and all of a sudden now you go from 119 losses in 03 to playing in the World Series in 06. That's a pretty improbable turnaround. I mean, that, it doesn't happen that quickly. Um, but it took some money, it took some vision from Dave Dombrowski, and uh, they both did a great job of getting this franchise turned around. Really what sparked it off as a Tigers fan myself was 
early in that 2006 season, you could tell that, you know, that the club was still feeling out the new manager, Jim Leland. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, it was a series versus uh, Oakland, that third game, when that uh, it could have been the Oakland or, or the Indians, but that third game where they didn't play well, and Jim Leland came out and spoke to the media, and he said, and he put it point blank, this organization and this ball club has taken games off and hasn't put forth great effort. And the when, once he said that, once he came out and said, you know, wins and losses are one thing, but I will always guarantee that this this ball club will play well and this ball club will give effort. And today we didn't. And and the manner in which he said it really at that point was like the the spark that lit the match for that season. And it was just something amazing to watch because literally you could see the transformation in the ball club. Yeah, he put the team on notice at that point, and and that was a game. You're right; it was a, a game, a final game of the series against the Indians, in which the Tigers didn't play well, and they had a five-hour flight to Oakland. You know, that's what up. I was. Yep. So you know, it was going to be a long flight out to the West Coast, and and Jim had had enough. I mean, he tried to nip it in the bud, and and he did so. And you know, throughout the course of that '06 season, I don't think anybody in baseball believed the Tigers were legit. You know, they were hanging around, hanging around. I remember we went to uh, to New York in August, late August. Tigers were still in the race, and I was doing a, a radio interview for one of the uh, New York radio stations out there. They wanted to get the lowdown of the Tigers. And, and it was it was in some ways a condescending interview. I uh, said so to say, look, you guys are playing really well right now, but you don't expect to be there with the Yankees at the end, do you? You know, that kind of an interview. And and I said, well, you know, this is a pretty good team right now. They may not have the marquee names that the, the Yankees have and some other ball clubs. They played pretty well as a team, and they got that guy in the dugout that's pretty good and Jim Leland. And then I remember Craig Monroe hit a huge home run to salvage a game in that Yankee series late in the season. And all of a sudden, September rolls around and, and guys were really believing. And, uh, you know, they may have snuck in with a wild card that year and, and lost the division. But, you know, as we all know, they, they did some damage in the postseason and, and got to the World Series. Yeah, and unfortunately that year ended with a World Series loss to the Cardinals. Your experiences covering the World Series, was it... As it would seem, the level of excitement ramped up, the atmosphere that much different. Describe for us and well, set the table for us, what's it like during a World Series run? Well, the, the, the downside of that was, and the disappointing side of that was, is that because once the postseason rolls around, the national television networks take over. So we pretty much were relegated to doing pre- and post-game work. And so Rod and I pretty much were at the ballpark before the game, uh, in the studio or at the ballpark after the game, depending on how, whether whether the team was, was on the road or not. Um, so, you know, we were kind of, it was a strange feeling. We had followed the team all year. We had broadcast mm. the team all season long. And now, you know, here it is playing for the biggest prize in baseball, and all we could do is three- and postgame stuff. Um, you know, but we knew that was the nature of the beast. You know, the networks take over in the postseason for television. We knew that's those were the ground rules going in. Um, but it doesn't make it less disappointing. So, you know, I, I still remember one of the greatest, you know, feelings I ever had at a baseball stadium. And one of my greatest memories will always be the Maglio Ordonez home run to send the Tigers into the World Series, the one to hit off Houston Street. And even though I didn't call that game and I didn't call that at that, it remains perhaps my favorite baseball memory, not just Tigers memory, but baseball memory in my entire career because I saw what it did for the city of Detroit and I saw how the city responded. Um, it was amazing. Um, even though I didn't call the game, it was still extremely rewarding and, and really pretty amazing. Tell, tell me about it. I, was, I remember where I was, definitely for sure. I was just in a basement hanging out. We were all playing cards, and when that moment hit, you had a, a crowd of about maybe 30 guys just screaming, hugging, and it was a, a, very, a very great moment for, for the organization, especially you know when you look at the struggles that the team had for so long. And it just made it, it, made it really a fun summer that year. 
there really is no describing what a, a summer looks like in Tigers baseball when the team is playing well. Yeah, there really isn't. And, you know, I mean, when you get to the postseason as well, it, it's just it, the energy is camped up so much that you, you just you can't believe it. I mean, you know, when a team scores a run in the first inning of a game in June, nobody really cares. You know, you've got nine innings to go. But when a team scores a run in the first inning in October and it's a playoff game or a World Series game, it just becomes huge. And it, it just takes on a life of its own. So, you know, that's what we play for all summer long. You know, obviously... Uh, you want to have a good year, and, and the fans come out and support this team really well, but in the end, you want to get to the postseason. You want to play when the weather's chilly because that's what it's all about, getting that World Series ring. And you know, Hopefully, this team will get back to, to playing for that next year. I don't think they're that far off. I certainly think they have a lot of talent left here, um, you know, but certainly they'll have to make some adjustments in the offseason. Okay, take us, and the reason why I love doing this podcast is I get a chance to go behind the scenes a little bit and to get into the workings of the job that you do. So, in a given day, what is it? What does the job entail for Mario and Pemba to be the television play-by-play voice of the Tigers? What does the job entail? Well, I think a lot of people are surprised when they find out what time I get to the ballpark every day for a 7 o'clock game. I think people think that we show up in the 4, 5, 6 o'clock and grab some dinner and do the game. And, it, and it's, that's the farthest from the truth. I'll be at the ballpark for a 7 p.m. game. I'll get there probably between 2.30 and 2.45. And and the first thing I do is I'll, I'll run into our production truck. I'll talk with our producer, our director, our graphics people, our, our tape guy who's putting together all the tape packages that we'll use that night. And we pretty much carve out a little bit of a, uh, uh, a, a way of going about the broadcast that night. We'll kind of figure out our plan. What do we want to talk about early? What do we want to talk about in the middle of the game? And, you know, if certain things happen, how will we approach them? And it all depends, obviously, on the opponent who's pitching that night, you know, some of the big players in the game and the series. So we kind of carve out a game plan uh, is probably the best way to put it. And then I'll go to the, the press box. I'll start to throw out my lineup card around, you know, 3.15 or so. And then at 3.30, 3.45, we head down to the to the Tigers' locker room, sit in a Brad Austin's press conference. Um, you know, we'll work both locker rooms, home and away. If we have to talk to any of the managers, coaches, players, we'll do that at that time. And then probably around 5 o'clock, I'm up to the booth, have a quick dinner between 5 and 5.30. And then once 5.30 rolls around, it's, uh, as they say, nut-cutting time, man. You've get you you've got to get into it. You've got to prepare your scorecard. you got to make sure all your biographical information is ready to go. We'll rehearse probably around 6 o'clock, rehearse the open. And then uh, that last half hour is, you know, it's it's you're kind of getting your mind ready to get, get to work. And uh, once 7 o'clock rolls around, we do the open, and we're off and running, and... Uh, a lot of what we do is predicated on what happens in that game, and we've got to be able to adjust. You know, we might go in and say, okay, the story tonight is Justin Verlander against Johnny Cueto. Well, if one of those guys gets knocked out of the game in the first inning, you've got to be able to adjust. You've got to be able to, to, to switch on the fly. And so that's the exciting thing about baseball every night is because you just don't know what's going to happen. You have an idea what's going to happen. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it won't. And you've got to be able to adjust. And then there are nights like June 2nd, 2010 when Armando Galarraga is pitching a superb game and you got to get you kind of get a feel like oh oh maybe we're in for something spectacular here Armando was pitching very well and then in the end Jim Joyce made a mistake and it was one of those things that is a lasting memory for Tigers fans your experiences your memories of Armando Galarraga really getting screwed by Jim Joyce well I I called uh I think in my career I've called about five no hitters at that time I had called four of them and, uh, you know, you, you get kind of nervous when you have no hitters, but when you have a perfect game, uh, there's another level of stress that goes with it as far as broadcast. You want to get everything right. 
you know, as, as a broadcast team, whether it's myself and Rod or the people in the truck, we don't want to mess up because once we get to the ninth inning, we know that every eyeball in the world of baseball is watching us. And, you know, the final call of a perfect game is going to be played over and over and over. So you want to get it right. You don't, you certainly don't want to script it. And I've never scripted a call, but you want to have an idea of what you're going to say and what you're going to do and, and how you're going to present it. And so when we got to the ninth inning, we got the first two men out. You know, now we're all on high alert, and this is probably going to happen here. And it was a ground ball hit to the right side of the infield, a bang-bang play at first, but it was a play that I'd seen a million times in my career. And every single time on a bang-bang play like that, the runner is out. And especially in a situation like we had with a perfect game on the line, I was convinced the call was going to be out. And with the naked eye, it looked like he was out because I had seen that play over and over and over. So what did I do? I called him out. Um, <laughs> but then I looked down at Jim Joyce, and there goes the safe sign. And I had to you know, quickly say, no, he called him safe. And I'm thinking to myself, man, i got to see this replay very fast because my eyes must have been lying to me. And it turns out they weren't. And you know, I, I felt bad for Jim because in my mind, Jim Joyce is one of the best umpires in the game. And I, I think if, if you look at some of the metrics on umpires, he really grades off pretty well and, and has most of his career. But he made a mistake. You know, at that point, I had a lot of people asking me, man, why didn't you kill Jim Joyce on the air that night? You, you just you, you let him off the hook. And I thought to myself, well, you know, the, the day that I do a perfect broadcast is the day that I can get on someone for making a huge error like that. I mean, we all make mistakes. The unfortunate thing for Jim Joyce was it was that the, the pinnacle of Armand Dallarga's career. And he'll never get that back. Uh, obviously, with instant replay at that time, we have a perfect game, and life goes on. But uh, I remember a huge disappointment. I remember feeling bad for Jim Joyce, and I just remember thinking, man, this is just one of the worst nights I've spent at the ballpark in a long, long time. And Justin Verlander, though, has provided us with great memories as well early in his tenure. He pitched two great no-hitters, has come close several times. In that moment, when you're about to, when you start to see it, do you start to maybe, you know, not talk about it? What's your philosophy? Because a lot of people will say, you know, don't tweet about it, don't talk about it, don't mention it on the air. But in recent and recent moments in watching, I've seen the Justin Verlander's pitching a no hitter on the on the crawl there at, on Fox Sports. What's your kind of philosophy about that? Should you talk about it? Are you a little bit superstitious? Yeah, I, I am. I, I don't know that it's more superstition than just how, kind of following baseball etiquette. And I, I would put it under the etiquette, you know, uh, department as opposed to superstitious. I am one of those people that does not believe that what I say on the air in any way directly affects what's going on in the field. I mean, I've had people tweet me saying, you know, there's scientific evidence that <laughs> that what you say in the booth will actually affect what you, what happens on the field. And I'm thinking, well, seriously, are you people going to go down that road? But you know, I I think it's more like I I liken it to. When nobody sits next to the pitcher on the bench, it's kind of etiquette. It's kind of a fun baseball thing. You know, nobody rips players for not sitting next to the pitcher when they have a no-hitter in progress. Yet when I won't say the words no-hitter, people get on me because I'm supposedly not doing my job. Well, if I'm doing radio and I have done radio no-hitters, I have used the term no-hitter because then you really have to let people what's going on know what's going on. They can't see the action. So if you're not telling them there's a no-hitter in progress, then you're not, probably not doing your job. But in television, we have other cues. You know, we can we can show a zero in the hit column. You know, we can side sidestep every possible way of describing it without using the word no hitter, and you can still get away with it. But I take a lot of criticism the last couple of no hit bids. Um, 
and certainly Verlander's last no-hitter against the Blue Jays. I took a lot of criticism for not saying no-hitter, and people thought that I wasn't doing my job. But in the end, I think they understood there was a no-hitter going on. And it's worth following. You know, it's a fun thing. Let's just follow baseball etiquette here. That's what I love doing. Now, I know Vince Scully will not do that. He will use the words no-hitter, and that's great. And other announcers will as well. But this is just the way I choose to do it. And some tidbits recently, uh, some news and notes that's been happening in your line of work is, you know, over the last couple of years, they've, you know, over there at Fox Sports have kind of, you know, mixed and matched uh, between a two-man booth and a three-man booth. Now, I know there can be challenges when you add that third voice and when you have someone new who maybe isn't used to it that much. But from your experience, do you find it takes a little bit of time to get into that rhythm when you have that third voice? Or are you naturally more comfortable with two? Or how's that been for you in the last couple of seasons? Well, we've only done really a couple of games in which we've had a three-man booth. I think we did uh, Rod, Jack, and I uh, two years ago in the, at the end of the 2014 season. And we did a couple of games this year, opening day and the last home game of the year with Gibby, Rod, and I. So we've only had a couple of three-man booths um, in the last couple of years. But I, I will tell you it's more of a challenge. Uh, it is so because you want to let everybody do their thing. And sometimes it's hard to get a cadence going and it's hard to get a rhythm going when, you know, you've got two analysts and one play-by-play guy, and, and I'm laying out a little bit more because, you know, if, if Gibby's got something to say or if Brian has something to say, and I'm not quite sure, and they're not quite sure if I'm going to go. And so it does, pause, or it does pose some problems in terms of getting a rhythm going. The other aspect of your question is, what has it been like to rotate three guys through the booth, you know, and only two at one time? In other words, what's it like having to go from working with Gibby to Rod to Jack to Gibby? That can be challenging as well, but I think, as the season progressed this year, I kind of learned how they like to broadcast a game, when they come in, when they get out, and I think they learned the same with me as well. So that was a lot easier to pull off than a three-man booth. Three-man booth can be tricky sometimes, um, you know, but we do our best, and I think they both have their, uh, their positives. Yeah, and I'm a little bit curious, you know, the, uh, in broadcasting, there's the play-by-play guy and then there's the color guy. If you're a young student and you're kind of deciding, well, am I more suited to be play-by-play? Am I more suited to be color? Talk about the different jobs and what does it take to be a good play-by-play guy or, as opposed to a color guy? What does, the color guy? what does the color guy do in the booth with you? Well, the analyst, I think, uh, you know, it's better if, if you're an analyst that you have actually played the game. And, you know, and, and certainly when doing Major League Baseball, when you have an analyst that's played at the highest level, which we do, Rod, Jack, and, and Gibby have all played in the Major Leagues. And they've all had several different jobs as well. I mean, you know, Rod's been a, a manager in the minor leagues. He's been a coach. He's been a scout. Gibby's been a manager in the Major Leagues. Uh, he's been a coach. And Jack, of course, is a borderline Hall of Famer. So, these guys have tremendous amount of experience that really, if you didn't play the game, you don't have that experience, and it's difficult to duplicate that. So if you want to be a good analyst, to me, the ones that are, that are good analysts are the guys that have, have played the game at the major league level and have the ability to describe what they're seeing and what should they should be seeing. In other words, it's easy for an analyst to go on the air and say, well, you know, hey, there was a double play, it was a good turn, second base, blah, 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 but To me, the good analysts are predicting what's coming up ahead and what you should be looking for and thinking two and three innings ahead. And I think Rod does a great job of that. I think Gibby does a great job of that. I think Jack does a great job of that as well. So to me, that makes a great analyst. The play-by-play guy, I think you have to be as concise as you can with your descriptions. You know, I, I think it's different on radio and television. You have to be more descriptive on radio. But as a television play-by-play guy, I'm more of a facilitator than anything else. 
I've got to involve the analysts, and also I have to listen to my producer and director and kind of steer the show where they want the show to go. So there's a lot of different hats the play-by-play guy has to wear. And one thing that I've realized in, in early on doing podcasts and, and learning about people who work in radio is the relationship between you and the producer is very important in terms of the rapport, in terms of getting ideas, in terms of getting that broadcast to sound as it needs to be. Has your experience working with the producers been uh, fruitful and you've enjoyed the relationships you've developed with the staff over there at Fox Sports? Oh, there's no question. And, you know, I, I've said this over and over, but we can't do what we do unless you have quality people in the truck. And, you know, whether that's a good producer, a good director, a good font coordinator who, who picks up all the graphics that you see. And we have one of the best in Austin, Drake, who comes up with some terrific metrics, but he's also, he also comes up with trends that are, that are really good that, that leads to building nice packages. And he's got a great replay guy, a great take guy. I mean, these are all people that you have to have a really good relationship with. And, uh, you know, maybe more so the producer than anyone else because he's mostly in your ear most of the time, he or she. And you kind of get a rhythm going with the producer as well. They will know where you're going, and you can sense sometimes where they want to go. And once you've, you've established that rhythm and that relationship, it makes the broadcast so much better, so much easier. And, you know, a lot of things, a lot of times when things blow up in the truck and things go wrong sometimes, there's no question. You know, machines freeze and, and players get hurt and all of a sudden your storylines blow up. You've got to be able to lean on a producer who's going to be able to get you through those tough times and, and we've got plenty of them. And around Major League Baseball, you know, when the Tigers aren't on or when there's maybe a, a day off or two or there's a break, who do you like to listen to play-by-play voice-wise or on the radio or, or on the television side? Who does Mario Pembo like to listen to? Well, I think there are a lot of talented guys in this business. I think that, you know, when you look at the national level, typically when we don't do games, they're on national TV. You know, I, I love listening to uh, Matt Vasgersian on uh, the MLB Network. I think he does a great job. I think Joe Davis, Fox Sports, does a great job on our national games. Um, you know, in, in terms of radio around the league, man, I love listening to a bunch of guys. I mean, Ken Korak and Vince Catronio out in Oakland, they're terrific. Yeah, Tom Hamilton in Cleveland is outstanding. Uh, you know, Dick Bremer does a great job on TV in Minnesota. Corey Provis does a great job on radio in Minnesota. Uh, so there are, you know, there aren't any bad announcers in the big leagues. I mean, these guys are all talented. They've all paid their dues, uh, and they all work extremely hard. And believe me, when you have to go 162 games, uh, it's as much mentally challenging as it is physically. So, uh, these guys put a lot of work into it, and, uh, they're all really a joy to listen to. Mario Pemba has been chatting one-on-one with the Doc. We've been getting some great stories regarding his extensive career as a play-by-play voice. Now let's segue a little bit into the 2015 Detroit Tigers season. And obviously it was described by Al Avila as a, you know, a disappointment. It was a tough season based on the expectations going into it, realizing that this team had World Series aspirations. In your opinion, it was a, a tough, uh, definitely a, a tough season, one that we weren't really expecting. No, and you hit the key word there, uh, expectations. I mean, I remember Leland, when he managed here, you know, the skip would always say, sometimes it doesn't matter who's down the, the hill or who you're facing or, you know, what, what kind of team you're playing. The toughest battle is, is battling expectations. And, and the Tigers have had expectations since 2006 every single year here. So that's, that's tough. I mean, you know, the, this ball club went into the season last year with a really good roster, yet they didn't have Verlander on opening day. Victor Martinez wasn't 100%. They lost a good chunk of the season from Miguel Cabrera. I mean, they had some major injuries that you hate to hang your hat on and say, well, that's why we didn't win. 
you know, I think in the end they still had enough to win this division or at least be competitive, even with those guys injured, but they just could not find the right mix. Um, and it was disappointing. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I know Brad Austin took a lot of heat, but, uh, you know, let's be honest, his bullpen really wasn't the best bullpen around. It was tough to, to go into games knowing that if you need six, seven, eight, nine innings worth uh, from the sixth to the ninth for your bullpen, it's going to be tough. You know, unless your starter can get you into the seventh or eighth, it's going to be tough for you to win uh, because they just didn't have a very good bullpen. So it's up to Al now to go into the offseason, find a couple of arms to that rotation, find a couple of arms to that bullpen, and, and go from there. Now, Al Avila has been with the organization quite a bit of time. He's learned under Dave Dombrowski. For those of us who don't really know Al Avila day-to-day, what's been your impression of him, his leadership style, and you know thoughts on the future going forward with the, with the, with the Detroit Tigers? Well, I think his leadership style from Dave Dombrowski is a little bit different. Dave was really, uh, for lack of a better term, buttoned up. I mean, he was all business, and he was extremely good at what he did. I think Al is more of a laid-back guy, a little bit more personable in, in the in the clubhouse. You know, guys can joke with Al. He can joke with Dave, but Dave was more serious. I think he was he was focused on winning the World Series here, and that was his style. Uh, Dave was probably the most talented general manager I've been around. I mean, he... He knows the game inside and out. He knows people inside and out. It's going to be interesting to see what Al can do. I think Al's probably going to bring more of an emphasis on analytics uh, going forward for the Tigers, and it's going to be interesting to see how he really constructs this roster in the offseason because I think he's going to use the numbers a little bit more in constructing the roster, and that's going to be a little bit different than what we've seen around here the past couple of years in Detroit. Now, having said that, Al has also made it quite clear that he's not abandoning and he realizes they're a critical part of their organization as well. So they're beefing up analytics. They're beefing up the scouting department. And now it's up to Al to go out there. And, you know, he's developed relationships uh, over the past couple of years here in Detroit with opposing GMs. He's going to have to go out now and deal with these GMs and try and improve his team because they certainly have some areas where they need improvement. But, again, as I've said before, I I certainly think that the the cupboard is far from fair. I mean, there's a lot of good young talent on this team. And, uh, it just needs a couple of weeks. And uh, obviously, you know, it was a tumultuous season and Dave Dombrowski was let go. Around that time, was it a little bit more, you know, hectic? Was it a little bit more, you know, because it kind of it kind of came as a surprise to a lot of people. You know, describe what it was like at that time, right around the trade deadline when it was, you know, the decision was made to sell and then subsequently Dave Dombrowski was let go. You know, when Dave was let go, I'll admit I was shocked, uh, to be honest with you. And I was surprised for this one reason. Dave was told at the trading deadline, look, we're probably not going to win this thing, even though I think they were only two and a half out of the wild card. You can just tell the mix wasn't right. So Mike Elliott said, all right, let's sell. So Dave Dombrowski goes out and sells. And now Dave is, is overseeing the restructuring of basically the organization when you talk about some of the young tech they're going to get back. When you trade David Price and you unassess for this uh, walking Soria, you're going to get some vital pieces back. Now, you've got to make the right decisions on getting the right guys back. You can't screw this up because you're giving away some some major talent here. So they trusted Dave in overseeing bringing guys like, you know, Michael Fulmer in, Daniel Norris, Matt Boyd, uh, Jacoby Jones, all, all the good young pieces they got. So I figured if they're trusting Dave with bringing the pieces in, they're going to lead the team in the future. He's probably going to be here as well. And so when they decided to let him go, I thought that was extremely surprising. Um, but uh, I guess in, in the eyes of Mr. Illich, it was time to move on, get a fresh voice. And that's why Al was hired. But, I don't think there were too many people that thought Dave would be fired at that point. I think most of us were surprised. 
Yeah, I think most people had thought maybe if something were to be done, it would be done at the end of the year when his contract was up. But in the end, that's what occurred. And now we look ahead a little bit. And so around town, the debate is obviously, what does the 2016 Tigers team need? And, you know, around, you know, here on the podcast, Adam and I, we talk a little bit about, okay, if the payroll is roughly going to be the same, you know, for example, where should they allocate most of the funds? And Adam and I kind of are debating back and forth whether they should put more resources into the starters in order to, you know, have success to maybe, you know, ease up the pressure on the bullpen, or should the Tigers really emphasize and finally address fixing that bullpen? If you're going to address one, because you know you can't fix everything all at once, should, in your opinion, the Tigers look to really bolster up the, the starting rotation with free agency or maybe look to really address that bullpen? Well, it's, it's a great question, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that question. I'll tell you why. Look at the two teams in the World Series this year. The New York Mets are built on tremendous, good, young starting pitching. You know, guys like Harvey and Syndergaard and DeGrom, I mean, these guys are A-list guys. And they're either going to win or lose based on their starting pitching. And then look at the Royals, who have been a team that has, you know, had leaned on Wade Davis and Kelvin Herrera and, and the back end of their bullpen and, and Holland before he was injured. So these are two teams that have gotten there pretty much, um, one with a good starting rotation and one with a really good bullpen. Which way is better? I don't know. If, if you're asking my opinion, I love to have the horses at the start at the top of your rotation. Um, you know, Verlander's coming back. He's going to be the number one. And based on how he pitched the last two months of the season, he's fine. Um, but I, you know, I, I still have quite some marks about Adelaide Sanchez. Is he healthy? Is he going to be able to get through an entire season? If he pitches like the Sanchez of, of two, three years ago, you know, they're in good shape with their top two guys. But I would tend to put the money, if I could, into starting pitching. Uh, which goes against everything that we've seen in the last couple of years because the bullpen has just been atrocious. But well, the one thing I've found about bullpen arms over the years is they can be so arbitrary. I mean, one year a guy can be really good, and then the next year not. I mean, look at the Astros bullpen. A guy like Will Harris was, you know, he's been he's been released a couple of times as a key cog to the back end of their bullpen this year. I think you can go out and find guys that had good arms from other teams that potentially could close or be eighth-inning guys and help your bullpen. I just don't know that you can go out and, and you know, try and cultivate big league arms that are going to be top of the rotation arms in your, in your starting rotation. So I would put more emphasis on the rotation, but I'm not the GM of the team. We'll see what Al's able to do. And, and keep this in mind, I mean, you need, you need two to tangle in terms of trading and and signing, I mean, it, it, it's not as easy as going out and saying, okay, I'm going to go out and get this guy, this guy, and this guy. Well, there are probably 29 other teams that want him too. So uh, it, it's a real difficult proposition, but, but that's the fun part of December. Yeah, and a bright spot. There were many bright spots in the 2015 season, and one was the emergence and the continued success of J.D. Martinez. I mean, a guy that legitimately, maybe if he wasn't playing with the Tigers, could have gotten 45 home runs. I mean, Comerica probably ate up five to seven of his home runs, but a guy that we got from the Astros and didn't have to give up much at, or much at all to get him. And he's a guy that's flourished and a guy now that has shown that he can be box office. He was, he had a great 2015 season and he's one of the, he's one of the bright spots that we're all looking forward to, to watching uh, at Comerica Park in the future. Well, he's legit. I mean, there's no question about that. I think most of us thought coming into last year, you know, hey, JD had a great 2014, but was it legit? You know, was it a fluke or is this the J.D. Martins that we'll see going forward? And, and I myself even had some question marks because 
you know, you'll spend three or four years in the, in the big leagues, and all of a sudden, you know, you go from 11 home runs to 25 and then to 40. You know, I mean, it, it, you wonder if there's a, a flukish nature about him. But having watched him go about his business this year, seeing how hard he works, seeing how serious he takes this game, and just seeing him play every day, uh, this guy's legit. I mean, going forward, I think the Tigers would do well to try and lock him up as soon as they can. Not only because he can hit 40 home runs and not get 100 runs, but he turned out to be a really good right fielder this year. He put, he put in a really impressive season this year defensively, and he was among the league leaders in assists. He played right field extremely well all season long, so I think he's a total package, and, and I think that uh, going forward, he certainly is going to be the key piece along with Cabrera in the middle of the lineup. Now, I'm looking forward to previewing the World Series matchup upcoming, the Royals versus the Mets. But just before that, I want to get your opinion on not what goes on in the clubhouse and things like that with managers, but just outwardly what we see as fans. And and I'm talking to you as a fan. And we look around and we see managers that are a little bit more, you know, animated, a little bit more explosive. And when you look across different sports, like in football or in basketball, I think a lot of the fans have taken to a gentleman like Stan Van Gundy because he just lays it all on the line. Now, I'm not here to profess what Brad Osmus may or may not say to the clubhouse behind closed doors. But outwardly, what we see of him in the dugout is a guy that seems very professional, very low-key, will get angry when needed, but the fan base kind of tends to view him as maybe a little bit too laid back, and maybe the ball club was a little bit reflective of that. I just want your opinion on, just from what you've watched and being a fan of baseball and being a fan of sports, do you take too much into that, a rah-rah kind of manager, or is it way overblown by us fans who just, you know, look to see, like, because the, the tie is, we feel like if a coach is expressive, then that can carry over into performance. What say you? Well, it's a great question, and I will tell you this. I've worked with every, just about every different type of, of manager and, and the way that they operate. Terry Collins, as I said before, was a fiery guy, an in-your-face guy, a rah-rah, let's go. Jim Leland was a combination of bringing presence and a get-in-your-face type of guy. Uh, Mike Sosha was a quiet-type leader, a guy that people respected because of just his presence. Brad Ausmus is a guy, and to me, this is the most important aspect of managing. Whether it's Mike Sosha or Joe Madden or Terry Collins or Jim Leland, if the players don't respect you or like you, they're not going to play for you. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter if you're screaming and yelling on the bench or if you're sitting down there spitting seeds like Brad Austin and, and just cerebrally looking at the game. None of that matters if the players don't respect you and like you. They don't have to like you. I'll even take that a step further. They don't have to really like you, but they have to respect you. And I will tell you this, the players respect Brad Austin. Brad has played as recently as 2010. I think they can relate to him because he is a younger guy. He knows the game inside and out. Now, does he make mistakes on the bench? Everybody does. Of course he does. Uh, but that's all part of the learning process. And if you're going to hire a guy to be your manager knowing he has no previous managing experience, well, then you better expect a few of those instances where he makes a mistake. I think it can be overrated sometimes when you've got a guy that marches up and down the, the, the dugout, screams and yells. People, I think, confuse that with caring. And uh, it's, it's the one criticism I hear about Brad Osmus. He sits on the bench and he doesn't say a word and he's too laid back. Well, you can't make someone into something they're not. That is just not his personality to be fiery. He'll get upset when he has to, and we've seen that he's gotten ejected from games. But I think the most important thing is that people respect him, his players respect him, and that's the case with Brad, and I think that's why he's coming back. 
I realize that too. Now, I'm granted, I, I'm guilty of saying that, but I realize now when you have two young children that if I was a baseball manager, I'd probably be on the highest dose of blood pressure medication. It's a tough job, and it sometimes is a thankless job with the pressure, but, you know, I'm kind of, you know, weighing both sides and understanding that keeping a calm ship is very important, but at the same time, maybe when needed, when maybe the ball club is struggling or when you see a play like a missed sign or an effort play to maybe be a little bit more animated is what I think people are kind of looking for in terms of, hey, you know, sports is a tough business. It's not a business where, you know, people should be coddled. And a lot of people, I think here in Metro Detroit, just based on our blue collar at- attitudes and things like that, that's why I think that attitude permeates around here in Metro Detroit. I would agree with that. And, and I don't fault that attitude. And, and sometimes there are times when I'll be doing a game and I'm like, Brad, get out there and let's go argue about this or, you know, scream and yell or lose it about this. I mean, there was that game against Cleveland late in the year where we messed up a bun coverage. And so Brad goes out. Here we are in the middle of September. And he's got to go out to remind guys of what our bun coverage is. I mean, that to me is unbelievable. And then the very next play, Terry Francona takes the bun off. They hit a home run. They had a triple. I think Lindor had a triple. Scored a couple of runs. And the game was over. Um, you know, those are the little things that I understand really annoy fans. And I think it really annoys Brad himself. And, you know, is, is the manager ultimately responsible for that? Yes. And so I get where fans are coming from when they feel the frustration and they don't see the frustration in Brad's face. What they see is just a calm guy. But here's the, here's the flip side of that. You can't play baseball like you would play football. If you approach baseball as a football player, you will never last. You, you're playing 162 games plus 30 more in spring training. And if you're lucky enough to get to the postseason, the only way to get through that is to is to have uh, an attitude where you can't get too high and you can't get too low. Trust me on this one. You just can't because you'll never make, you'll flame out of the month of July if you're going to freak out about every little missed sign or missed bump. Um, that's, just, that's just the way the game is. Um, but, but again, I do understand where the frustration from the fans comes in. And sometimes I feel that same frustration too. Starting tonight, when this podcast airs on Tuesday, the Mets are going to take on the Royals in Kansas City in Game 1 of the World Series. All baseball, all baseball fans are excited because it looks like it's going to be a classic matchup that is likely to go to 6-7 games. You have two clubs who haven't won the World Series in quite a bit of time with the Royals winning it in 85 and the Mets winning it in 86. So two fan bases that have been hungry, you know, have been up-and-comers, are going to be satisfied at the end of this series. How do you view this series matchup, and who do you think comes away, comes away with the World Series trophy? Well, I see it as a seven-gamer. I think these are two teams that are pretty evenly matched. I think that you know there's an advantage for the Mets in the starting pitching. I think there's an advantage for the Royals in the, in the bullpen. I think that um, when I look at the Royals, and you know we've seen them, we've seen them 19 times every year, and and every single game with Kansas City, I'm just astounded at the depth of their lineup, and it, and it's how they're able to turn the lineup over and how they're able to put the ball in play, be as aggressive as they are, yet not strike out. They just find a way to put the ball in play. And, and when you have a team that doesn't strike out much, you have a team that's just tough. I, I remember Justin Verlander saying the lineup that he hates to face the most in the American League, not the Toronto Blue Jays that have all the big boppers in the middle of their lineup and, you know, crush four or five homers a game. It's the lineup the Royals run out at you because they, they battle you tooth and nail one through nine in the lineup. I think ultimately, in the end, I think the Royals are too balanced um, to lose this series. But if if they can get hot, if the Mets can get hot behind Degrom and and Syndergaard and and uh, and Harvey or whoever they're going to throw out there, they can certainly win this series. But 
The other thing that, that's going to hurt the Mets, I think, is the fact that they're going to have to kind of a lengthy layoff. I think they had a five-day layoff after sweeping the Cubs. I, I, I really think that makes a difference. You know, we saw that in Detroit in 06 and 2012. So I think it'll have somewhat of an effect on them. I think the Royals got and they've got home field advantage. I think they got to a quick start in the series. And I think they ultimately went in seven. Yeah, and an interesting addition was Yoannis Cespedes to the Mets. And what I like about baseball is sometimes the unsung heroes can come up and really do some damage. I mean, after Daniel Murphy didn't hit more than 14 home runs at any point in a single season, he's got seven home runs in the 2015 postseason. Are there any players also that you might be looking at that aren't maybe name guys that could be contributing factors in the series? Well, you know, I, I think Murphy is a great example of, of what postseason is all about. I mean, we see this all the time in postseason. I mean, I think back to 06 when David Eckstein was the MVP mm-hmm. of the World Series for the St. Louis Cardinals. David Eckstein was the MVP. Yeah, and we're yep. thinking, how in the world did that happen? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. I mean, is, is it, who knows? I mean, it, it could be anywhere from Paulo Orlando <laughs> you know, coming up with a huge hit and a great catch in right field to, I don't know, pick your you know, innocuous uh, New York Met. I mean, it, it, it's 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 hard to tell, but I think the postseason is built for guys that are just kind of lame in the weeds. You know, guys that are that are maybe bit players or not star players. It always seems to work out that way. I mean, think about the two World Series. What did Miguel Cabrera do for the Tigers, and and what did Prince Fielder do for the Tigers? I mean, not a whole lot in '06 and 2012. But it's the other guys that have a chance to step up and. I think that uh, in the end, you'll probably see one or two guys that you know that might be able to do that. Was 2012 really the Tigers' best chance at a World Series, or was it in 2006? Um, I know that 2006, the Cardinals were really a solid team, but in 2012, the Tigers were the favorites, but that week off might have just been that devastating blow that allowed the offense to just kind of stagnate a little bit. Had the, I believe, I truly believe, had the playoffs started a day or two later, it wouldn't have been a sweep. I agree with that 100%. I think 12 is probably a better chance for the Tigers, but I'll go you one better. And I think the 2013 team is even better than both of those. You know, I, I think that the, the team that they brought into Boston and, you know, before the, the Grand Slam yeah. home run by Ortiz, I mean, that team was ready to go up 2-0 and ready to come back home and ready to close out the Red Sox. And it was lights out. And all of a sudden it's 1-1 and now it's a brand new series and it's, it's totally different. So, um, I really believe that the Tigers' best team from 06 to last year was that 2013 team. I think they had everything. I think they, they had their best chance to win a World Series that year. But that's what's so cool about this game is that all it takes is one big swing of the bat to turn a World Series and boom, it's over. Uh, and that's what happened to the Tigers in 13. But if I had to pick between 6 and 12, I think you're right. I think 12 is probably a, a better chance for the Tigers to win the World Series. And, uh, and look what happened, a four-game sweep. I mean, it's, it's hard to figure out sometimes. Mario Pemba, Fox Sports Detroit, play-by-play voice for the Detroit Tigers. I mean, an hour has flown by. I love doing these podcasts. It went by way too fast. But thank you for sharing your vast experience as a play-by-play voice. Now, I want to get you out of here on this. I ask everybody that I get a chance to interview. It just kind of gives me a chance to see what your interest would be. But you got four tickets. You can go to any game, any sport, any venue in the world, and you can take three people with you, friends, family, individuals who are passed away, celebrities. What venue would you go to? What would you watch? And who would you take? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'd have to think about this. But, I'm, you know, aside from, from baseball, I'm such a college basketball fan. I would have to say um, I would take three of my best friends, three of my best Spartan buddies to an NCAA final game between Michigan State and whoever. 
at <laughs> Duke, Kentucky, pick whoever you want. But I would love to see the Spartans win the national championship in person. Uh, and I'd bring probably my best three buddies who are Spartan fans. We'd go out there and we'd have a great time. And I think back to the Rose Bowl. We were at the Rose Bowl with three of my best friends a couple of years ago when Spartans beat Stanford. And that feeling was just unbelievable. I would love to see him win a national championship, whether it's in football or basketball. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, but that would probably be my pick, uh, to see the Spartans win a national championship. You got it. Go green, go white. Mario, thank <laughs> you know it. I'm a fellow Sparty, 2001 graduate. I was um, in my dorm room in 2000 when the Spartans won versus Florida, and I, I can share that sentiment with you. It's a great feeling and one that I'll definitely never forget, being a junior in college, winning the national title, celebrating, and having a good old time, man. I enjoyed my college experience, and, you know, I want to thank you. You you know, you really, you know, this podcast platform is really great. It gives me a chance to talk to people that I look up to and admire. We watch you game in and game out. I thank you for your work. Uh, we look forward to many more years of continued success, and thank you for giving us a little bit of insight on the Detroit Sports Podcast. Well, thank you for the kind words, and uh, have a great winter. We'll see you. Before you know it, opening day 2016 will be here. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, and hopefully many more baseball chats. Thank you very much, Mario. You bet.